everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King Sports, international athlete advocate and coach educator. And today we have a great chat coming up about training and competition. So we're going to begin with uh, some questions from uh, a great athlete and a great person and, and also a KSI coach in Paul Briggs. So Paul, I know you've got some some serious questions that were worthy of us having this chat. So where do you want to begin? Um, so I, I, I just I want to begin talking about transfer again. Um, I know that we, we have had this chat before, but um, in my application of what I do know and what I have learned from you, um, I've, I've got deeper questions. Um, with, with boxes, what I, what I now understand with where I've been and the experience that I've gained doing what I do for as long as I have, um, boxing is, is, in my mind, 90% psychological, 10% physical. And I know that that can be debatable, but um, I think that, well, I know that um, I've been able to talk fighters into doing things that they never would have in their wildest dreams imagined that they were capable of doing in the ring. Um, and then that leads me to question, well, <clears throat> with some of the things that, that, that we do, um, although it might not have a physical transfer, um, I, in my experience, there are certain things that do, they might not be beneficial physically, but they are definitely beneficial I've seen that they have become beneficial um, psychologically for a fighter to believe more in his own ability. Um, and uh, I'm just wanting to get um, more clarity on um, or a little bit more insight, uh, Ian, from yourself around um, the realities of... Um, doing a thing that isn't necessarily it's not detrimental but it's not necessarily beneficial physically but you can see it has a psychological transfer that is really beneficial and so therefore lifting the, the athletes capabilities um, okay so let's, let's start off with a really simple simple concept there yeah. is no doubt whatsoever that the human can be induced, enticed, inspired, motivated, whatever word you want to use. Yes. Or given a reason to do more than they would normally would, uh, to express more effort, more more force, more willpower, whatever the variable you're looking to do. So there's no doubt about it that we have the ability to raise physical work capacity through a variety of psychological, let's call it manipulations. So before we, that's indisputable, but I just want to get some clarity around this point. Whenever a human goes beyond their, their protective mechanisms, they are digging a deeper inroad into their recovery ability. So let's assume that a person's perception of I can't do anymore, I'm exhausted, is a protective mechanism. And that's a discussion in itself, which I will come back to. Yep. But when we get them to go beyond that, whilst they're capable of that, we have to understand the price that's paid from a 
from a, a draining point of view in terms of the ability to recover or the need to recover from that. So when these techniques are used too often, the athletes don't recover. So I'll give you a real simple example. I'll use another sport. Let's say you're in basketball or any team sport and the coach is getting fired up in the pre-season games and fired up in the early season games. By the time you get to the mid-season, late season, the athletes are exhausted. And one of the reasons they're exhausted is because the coach was using his motivational techniques to raise them too often too early in the season. So the, the, the first thing we've established is, yes, we, we as coaches have the ability to manipulate physical effort. But the second thing I want to lay down is that nothing's for free. You're taking and you're making a deposit. Sorry, you're making a withdrawal. You're making a withdrawal from the, the capacity, which needs to be paid back. You're, you're making a withdrawal from the cookie jar, from the from the work capacity or the recovery ability of a human being, and it's got to be replaced. And that is is a that is a concept that is so overlooked. I mean, there, there's a there's a unwritten uh, perception amongst coaches that athletes should just change their battery and they keep going. Now, I know you know that's not that simple, but I also want you to understand that when we raise someone above their own desires of work effort or their own belief of work ethic, they're probably working harder than they have before and therefore they need more time or more recovery techniques than they did in the past. So there's, there's two things we've established so far. The first one is that, yes, psychological techniques to increase work capacity are, are valid. Secondly, I want to confirm and establish that they're not for free. You're making a deposit, sorry, you're making a withdrawal that will require a deposit of recovery, and if that deposit is not made, you'll get into a negative balance. The third thing I want you to also consider is this, that every athlete has a different different barometer. Some athletes have no protective mechanism whatsoever, and and others have a, a, a more protective mechanism. So others will, will tap out at an earlier stage because their subconscious desires or their protective mechanism is one more of self-protection. Whereas other athletes, you know, are, are, are people can say they're more driven or they're, or they're more crazy or they want to work harder and they have a higher work capacity and they'll, they'll tap out at a, at a higher point of their work capacity. So I want to be real clear that my perception is that if you're an athlete that's probably being a bit conservative and putting their, their limit low because of their well-established protective mechanisms, they're the ones that you might occasionally push up. But when you've got the athlete whose who's barometer, his protective switch, his overload switch is so high that it's already in excess of his physical capability to recover, if you push that one up, I mean, they're already heading towards overtraining or injuries from, because they're doing more than what they can recover from. So you push them along through psychological techniques and you get faster injuries, you've got earlier injuries, you've got bigger injuries. So there's a price to be paid for moving them up in the work capacity, but you also understand who you should be doing that to and how often and how much based upon what you think their limiting factors are. And are they someone who's fairly conservative or are they someone who's fairly crazy when it comes to a higher limit of work capacity? So three points I've made, Paul, how are we travelling? Um, really good. So um, if I can just jump in again. Um, so my my actual question now, I wanted to start the conversation off in that area because that's exactly where I, I, I was wanting um, to go first. And to then ask this question, I've, I've started in understanding that and that being um, the threshold that I've always come from is, you know, 
burn the candle at both ends, go as hard as you can, go harder than the next man, spew in the bucket, go again, yes. that kind yes. of thing. To yes. now, what I'm doing with my fighters, and, and my, my question was this. I've, I've got them doing, um, so to give you an example, instead of actually punching a bag, I've got them using their fingertips and doing real high intensity, but um, low, uh, how would I call it, low, uh, low power. Um, and the, the results that, that I'm getting with them is absolutely phenomenal. So they're getting super, super sharp. And so what I'm starting to do is go more on the, um, uh, I don't even know how, what I'd call it, the speed and, and, and working on their sharpness. Yes. Rather than the actual power. So then now my question in doing that is, Am I actually taking away from um, the power end, or now could I start working on like um, you, you know how I commented on the power clean um, uh, yes. post the other day? The, the reason why I was commenting on that and was leading into the, to what I'm asking now because if I'm working so much now on the sharper end of what my fighters are doing rather than the power end and the, the speed that they get into the sharpness of movement, the, the clarity of their eye, what they see is exponential now. So is it advantageous now to actually bring more of um, uh, the development of their power base? Into so this that? is a great question. And this, this question applies to all aspects of training. I'm going to simplify it like this. Yep. Imagine, an athlete performs on a continuum. So let's call let's call a punch the performance. A punch is a performance. Yep. And there's a there's a there's a force component and there's a speed component, and they combine to make power. Yep. Now, there's also a work capacity component. We can make a different continuum for work capacity. So let, let me give an example. Let's say in a round you throw 50 punches, and I don't know how many you throw, but let's say in a round you throw 50 punches. So yep. the yep. typical attitude of, of, of uh, fighting sports and, and many other sports is to say, okay, well, if we're going to throw 50, we need to, we need to train 60. We need yep. to train 70. We need to train on that end of the continuum. Now, there's an inverse relationship that's occurring between volume and intensity. So when we do over volume, we are doing it at lower intensity. Now, that intensity is either power or speed or both. Now, the continuum that you're talking about is a, is the speed force continuum. So what you're doing is you're spending, uh, giving, giving a greater percentage of the stimulus at a higher speed and therefore a lower force rather than where most would go would be let's hit the bag as hard as we can, let's bench press as heavy as we can, and they're increasing the force output, but they're not shifting the speed upwards. So the power outcome is possibly not optimized. Now, all you're doing is asking the question is where on the continuum of, of force and speed should I be working and how much time should I spend there? My, my response is really simple. You need to move to the, to the end of the continuum from where they are in the direction you want to take them. So if an athlete, let's say you felt a boxer was slow and their strike was slow, and that was hurting them. Say, um, in amateur boxing, which is you know, in some some could say it's a it's a it's a number of contacts, right? force of the contact. 
Uh, even a professional fighter, there'd be an argument for, for the number of punches thrown in terms of, of, of contact punches or just, just speed of a jab. Then you would take that athlete and spend more time with them on, on, the, on the faster end of the continuum. But if you had an athlete who had developed the speed but you felt lacked the power in, say, uh, the force in, 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 a, in a blow that you wanted to be a knockdown blow, Yes. Then you, then you need to move that athlete back earlier. So you should be working both ends of the continuum, but you yes. should be working uh, when, at both ends of the continuum, meaning the continuum of where you want them to fight at. The, the point on the line where you want them to fight at, you've got to train both ends of, of both sides of that on the continuum, but you need to earn more on the, on the side of the continuum where the deficiency lies. Got you. So and you, what, what, individualize that. Sorry, say again. And I want you to individualize that. So stop thinking about generalizations yeah. and start thinking about yes. individual. Got you. So yeah, already in my mind now, there's there's two, three of my fighters that are at all at different ends of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, what what one of them is fighting uh, Saturday night. Um, uh, two more are fighting. Oh, sorry, another one's fighting next weekend. So, um, so yeah, okay, okay, that makes sense. I got it. Penny's dropped. And the other variable to consider, Paul, is the style that they fight with. Yes. And this is where the individualization of training really, really has to dominate the, the training discussion. Generally speaking, and I say generally speaking, if you've got an inside fighter, I yep. like them to have a fair bit of force. Yes, agreed. Because if they don't, if they don't make an impact on a short period of time, they're going to pay the price from being inside. Hundred percent. But if you've got a fighter who fights at range or outside range, then you <laughs> might want more speed because they've got to travel further distance and and, and create a, a more of a shock element. So going back to one of my favourites in Mike Tyson, Tyson was an inside yes. fighter at his, at his peak, and, yes. and Tyson dominated on force. No other way to describe it. Yeah, but when when he lost his foot speed and when he lost his ability to move quickly inside the range of his opponent and had to compete like the average boxer does, which was with more range, he didn't have the hand speed or, or, or the overall boxing strategy to deal with fighting at range. Agreed. So taking into account their boxing style and how you want them to box. And, and, you know, I'm not, maybe he could have done with it. I mean, obviously, as he aged and slowed down, he needed to change his style and therefore needed more of what we're talking about here. But that, just take that into account. Take the individual style of the boxer into account as well as the, where the individual sits on the continuum. Do they lack speed? Do they lack force? Okay. So that what, what I'm tending to do in, in trying to answer my own question in – real time in the gym as I'm training these guys getting ready for fights I'm tending to take like um the gentleman who's fighting uh uh Saturday night <clears throat> Friday night sorry um very powerful more more on the slower end and more powerful end of the of the spectrum um so what I've focused on with him is is um foot speed because for me fast feet means fast hands and mm-hmm. um not so much on power, but more on on the retraction of punch, focusing on the retraction of punches, which then 
you know, if if you if I've got him focusing on the retraction of punches and making that fast, then then the the um, the extension of the punch becomes even faster. So um, because these are the powers naturally there, what I then tend to focus on with him is just more speed. Um, but I, again, I was just um, yeah. So, so let me throw I another you've one. Answered, you've answered my question. It's an individual thing. Absolutely. But there's another. Yeah. There's a. There's a bigger complication now. Everybody looks at an athlete and says, "What do I need to do today to be good tomorrow?" I, yep. I don't like. That. What I want you to do is, I want you to say, "When do I want this athlete to be at their best? Is it? Is it this month? Is it next year? Is it five years time? Is it ten years time?" And then take that time frame and work backwards from that because we often have to do things, what well, we should be doing things, the further away we are from a peak, be it an annual peak or a career peak, the further we are, the more we should be doing things that address their greatest need but might not be the way we'd prepare them immediately before a fight. So don't try to solve all problems in, in eight-week, just like you know, boxing. One of the things I think boxing is limited by is everyone just thinks of an eight-week camp or a 10-week camp. And for yep. me, athletes should be prepared, you know, 11 and a half months of the year training, uh, you know, and a minimum of 10, if not a 20 or 30 year plan. And therefore, the things we do at any stage of their development might not be the things we're going to do with them later in their development. So we have to develop some fundamentals that if we were to throw them in the ring at that point in time, they, would, they wouldn't come out too good. But we're doing that now because we know we need to do that to delay the foundation and that it will contribute to where we want to be in, in the whatever time period in the future. And that's what year plans and multi-year plans are all about. So don't get caught up in, in um, trying to create their final outcome in, in, in either a training session or a training week or even a training block. You know, take a longer-term uh, vision to, to it, if that makes sense. Now, yeah, I, 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 I the, only, the only way for you to learn how to do that as a coach is to, 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 to make uh, long-term plans and make notes of what's going on so that you can come to your own course spec relationships about what's effective. Because there aren't too many coaches in the world, I believe, that can, the, the physical coaches or, or, or school coaches, head coaches, that can say to me, I'm going to do this in year one so that in year 10, this is the outcome. Yeah, got you. I'm kind of doing that with one of my youngest fighters who's had his first knockout uh, two weeks ago. Um, I'm not kind of doing it. I'm doing that with him. Like I've got, I've got a uh, 10 year plan with him and we're uh, second year into that, that uh, 10 year plan. And, <clears throat> and, and he's um, just far outseeding my expectations as we go. And I feel that that is because of the, the, um, the length of, of vision that I have for him with, with regards to his training. Um, Good. So that, that, that plan, long-term plan, should reflect the value in relation to the athlete of how you prioritise qualities. For example, in the athletic qualities and the four we typically identify as technical, tactical, psychological, physical, what is the yes. first one you're seeking to establish? What is the second one you're seeking to, to, to perfect? What is the third one you're seeking to get mastery of? What is the fourth one you're seeking to get mastery of? Because you're not going to get them all at once, generally speaking. And the same yes. thing occurs within the physical qualities, which we, we view as physical, sorry, the technical, tactics, sorry, strength, uh, flexibility, strength, speed, and endurance. So, again, what's dominating here and what's dominating there? Um, you know, generally speaking, 
in, and that is reflected in the year plan as well as the multi-year plan. Um, and obviously, I have my views on on the generic model of sequencing of the athletic components, and I have uh, also my own generic model of the sequencing of the physical components. But it doesn't matter which one, which model that you're adopting, as long as you can um, elocute, uh, verbalise, uh, and uh, therefore display the clarity of the plan by being able to fairly simply explain to someone that this is our what we're focused on now and then we'll be not not exclusively but it's our dominant focus and then we'll be bringing other things through and, and I'm going to bring that discussion back to the psychological but I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk yeah well that's that that's <clears throat> my next thing is that um... <sighs> To give an example, with this young this young uh, young fighter that I'm, I'm speaking of, he's 17, so he turns 18 at the end of this year, and that's when I'm going to turn him pro. Um, he's starting to show now that he's ready to step into the pros because he's knocking men out. Um, he's 17 years old, and he's, I think his last opponent was um, 20, late 20s, and he, he knocked him out cold. So, um, um what I'm working with this kid because he's he's um he, he's uh what would you say he's not a highly intellectual young man he's um fairly simple which is great because his approach to things is really simple um which is mm -hmm. actually excellent um, he doesn't overcomplicate things um yet I feel that um there's more that I'm tending to have an effect on him with certain things psychologically that I'm not even ex really explaining that they're not a whole lot of benefit physically, but they actually are becoming beneficial physically to him because of more so the psychological transfer that he's getting from it. If that makes sense. And this is good because, because as you know, what I teach, is that in my general model, my generic model for the athletic qualities is prioritised uh, technique first, tactics second, and physical third. Yep. But all along the way, everything you do with a human every single day and every single way and every single word, you're shaping them psychologically. Yeah. And those, that interaction, that having the dynamics of your interaction, the way you, you conduct yourself, the way you communicate, what you expect of them in their habits, and their, their management of their emotions. These are the valuable psychological training that we're giving the athlete that are not physical, that too many people waste their time, spin their wheels and damage their athletes seeking to achieve because they don't know how to achieve these things in a time efficient, energy efficient way. So it is a culture, it is, it is a, a code, it is a behavior that we instill upon the athlete that takes no effort uh, physical, it takes no ATP, it takes no energy, it takes uh, a focus and, and, and brain space initially, but they're the habits that become um, effortless. So I, I, I believe you are following uh, what I teach there. And so, so it, uh, adding to that, what I've explained, I've pulled some of the um, more, the, the older fighters aside and said to them that I want this young man, I want this young man off your back. So I want all of you to rally around him and encourage him to lead the stretching when they do the warm-up stretches um, before they train, which they stretch for about half an hour to 40 minutes. 
Um, and now I walk in the gym and he'll be there, you know, um, guiding the, the – and when I say guiding, I mean they're all doing it, but he's verbalising it, which is just absolutely incredible. He's giving this young man uh, – like every every fighter in, in the fighters' classes, just giving this young man um, complete ownership now uh, of, of his um, ability to lead, which is growing him psychologically even more. It's adding – to um, what I'm talking about, you know, psychologically, and which is then feeding back to every other fighter. They're starting to understand, right, this is how you build the psyche of a warrior. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that that when, when, when one of them steps up, if every other man there supports him and just says, well, you lead us now and gives that responsibility, then they just yeah this this kid is just growing exponentially i just I, i'm i'm blown away by it and that in in turn feeds back to every other fighter because they're watching going oh wow look at what's happening here we see how strong this kid's getting psychologically and so in them giving this young man the responsibility to step up and lead that sort of feeds back to them as to how they can grow their own psychological game if yeah and that's why it's, as a um, coach it's it's the management of the dynamics of the human within the circle. I call it a circle. So everybody who's who steps into the into the training environment is in the circle. And yes, as a coach, it's our job to control the the dynamic and the impact that everybody in the circle is having because the culture is the average of everybody in the circle. So it's quite easy to lose your own culture simply by changing the variables, changing who gets into the circle. And one way, obviously, is to eliminate someone from the circle, but it's a far easier way to have a strong culture and to shape and guide the culture rather than than abdicate as a coach. Because we want to lead, but we want to lead without looking like we're being authoritarian about it. We want to lead by encouraging people into spaces that will have a secondary benefit of helping them grow. Yeah, that's exactly what, what what's happening. So that, that's good. I'm on the right track there. Um, so uh, my next question, um, coming back to the speed power um, continuum, mm-hmm. if I'm working so heavily on the the lighter, faster, more dynamic side of the technical base for the fighter, mm-hmm. would it be time now to bring in um, – power exercises like deadlifts, squats, that kind of thing. Okay, so let's get real clear. You should never remove anything completely unless you believe it's damaging. So the the balance of training should be maintenance or dominance, but it should never be removed. Now, there are some things that should be removed. Anything that's damaging the body, damaging the athlete, they're creating imbalances further if you remove them. But generally speaking, don't ever remove a trait just because you want to dominate another trait. Just put it in a minimalist. And be also conscious that the longer you dominate in any given quality, the more you potentially detrain in another quality. Yes. So that's um, a, a very subtle discernment made by a coach that you know, I, I, I want you to go down to how many reps even. Like if I'll, I'll say, okay, we'll do, we'll do say five reps of this today. I know if we did seven reps that I would risk getting an adaptation. It's a non-specific stimulus. I don't want an adaptation to the movement. I just want an I just want a generic adaptation. So if I do too many reps or too many, too, too many sessions on it, I'm actually going to get an adaptation to it. 
So when you're looking to get a stimulus from something that's a little bit less specific to what's going to happen in the ring, you have to be very careful with the volume of that stimulus. Otherwise, you'll start to adapt to a relatively non-specific outcome. So then, Ian, would would it be of more benefit? I've developed one or two um, drill type. Well, yeah, the drills. Uh, one or two drills, or more like five or six um, drills that are that are absolutely specific for the certain movements and to develop um, uh, power and speed within that movement. Um, would it be more of more benefit to the fighters to be able to do these? and learn to do them quicker and sharper and and in a stronger way than to actually get them moving weight or like i understand there's definitely going to be a benefit but then coming into what you're saying um you know what we do in one area is taken away from another so i'm just tending to so find that uh, sorry yeah. our goal as coaches is to is to cut is to, is to create outcomes in the most time efficient way um, without taking shortcuts because yep. if, we, if we're laborious in our development of a certain outcome, we not only use too much energy, and energy is a limited supply in a human in, in a lifetime perspective, let alone in a, in a more acute sense, but we also risk an adaptation of a non-specific outcome. So what I find is when coaches aren't, uh, aren't driven to be, to be better, then their, their skill development drills are cumbersome, um, they take too long, they often fail anyway, but in the interim, there's too much non-specific adaptation. So you're, the challenge is over time becoming far more efficient at developing the outcome you want so that you, you, you don't have to spend as much time away from a more specific stimulus. Got ya. I've had about now, eight tennis drops there, that's amazing. Whether it's the athlete's just a slow learner or, or you, not being you, but the coach is a, is a slow teacher or a poor teacher, is always open for review. I mean, any coach has always got to ask themselves, okay, if this drill's not going down the way I want it to, is because the athlete's you know, a bit of a slow wick or am I just not delivering it well? So you've got a learning challenge or a teaching challenge. And, and in any teaching environment, the teacher should, should default to it's a teaching challenge. It's my job to deliver it in a way that the athlete can optimise. Yep. Yeah, I, I always look at myself first and the athlete second. Yeah, I, I know you would. And that's the yeah. challenge with coaching. But, you know, the, the, the art of coaching is, is it's a beautiful journey. But the difference between efficient coaching in, in skill development and inefficient coaching development is huge. And unfortunately, the pyramid is a very uh, flat pyramid. There's uh, or a very steep pyramid, I think, if I'm more accurate word. There's not too many people at the top in terms of efficiency. Most, most coaches accept that... Um, you know, the athlete's slow to learn or it's going to take X amount of period of time. We want to make we want to make changes quickly, not because we're seeking instant gratification, but because it's possible. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I think that's pretty much answered my questions. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to a real coach facing the real questions and looking for the answers themselves and simply seeking some guidance because uh, it's, there, there are very few coaches in the world who, who really, really want to get better. Most people just want to get a job, just get a contract, get associated with a certain team, and, and maybe if they're lucky, win in, a, win in a championship once every 20 years. And that's not my idea of fun. Um, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't light me up. I wouldn't get out of bed for that at all in the mornings. And you, you know, that's why I enjoy talking with you, Paul, because you're taking the same championship attitude to your coaching as you did your, your fighting, which is um, pretty rare. 
Oh, I'm I'm in heaven right now because I I'm just having this conversation. I'm about to walk outside a door where there are fighters waiting for me to apply. What? So I'm I'm like a pig in the mud. <laughs> Good stuff. And that's why we get up in the morning, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later and get up and get excited about the day because we're still looking for, for how to do it better and we're excited by the outcomes. Yep, yep, awesome. I appreciate it. Okay, Paul, I'll let you go and train those fighters. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. Great, thanks, Paul.